It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. My guest today says there is a seismic shift going on in much of the world. Now, you may not have felt it yet, but you will and your children definitely will. Author Daniel Pink says that gone are the days where lawyers and doctors and computer programmers excel without incorporating design, story, symphony, empathy, play, and meaning into their work. I read his book, it's called A Whole New Mind, and I think he's really onto something here. Is spirituality and right brain creativity as important as intellect? I'm excited today to introduce Dan Pink's ideas to you. The last few decades have belonged to a certain kind of person with a certain kind of mind. Computer programmers who could crank code, lawyers who could craft contracts, MBAs who could crunch numbers. But the keys to the kingdom are changing hands. These are the prophetic words from a book I picked up last spring, and I literally could not put the book down. I, I, I liked it so much. Y'all know what happens when I like a book. Uh, I thought it's such an important piece of work that I proceeded to purchase 4,500 copies and give 4,500 copies as gifts to the graduating class at Stanford, where I was the commencement speaker, because I now believe that a Whole New Mind, this book I'm holding in my hand, A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future, is an imperative for future success. Daniel Pink, I just want you to know, I was definitely in my right mind when I picked up this book. Wow, thank you. Thank you, and thanks for giving it out to everyone at Stanford. Welcome. See, I didn't even call you to tell you I was going to do it. Well, when my publisher told me this was happening, I actually thought, I actually asked to call them back to make sure that it wasn't a friend of mine pulling a prank on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, explain to us... Number one, difference between left brain and right brain. Why right brainers are going to rule the future? What is my right brain? It mm -hmm. used to be that the abilities that mattered most in any kind of profession were the left brain kind of abilities. Logical, linear, sequential, uh, SAT, spreadsheet kind of abilities. Right. And today, those abilities still matter, right. but they're not enough. And the abilities that now matter most are abilities that are characteristic of the right hemisphere, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, those kinds of abilities have become really the first among equals in a whole range of businesses, a whole range of professions. 
And so does it mean that those people who are more left brain, more logical, you know, accountants, lawyers, so forth, that those people are going to be out of work? Not necessarily. Um, But it means that they have some work to do. People like me. I myself happen to be an extremely left brain person. Very logical, very linear. Really? I did not get that impression from reading this book. Well, then I did a good job of concealing my inner self. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm trying to myself to try to learn how to do these things, to do these things better. My instinct is always to draw a chart rather than to draw a picture. Really? Um, Yeah. So now I'm trying to work these right brain muscles into shape. Well, this is why I was so attracted to the book. First of all, I had read... Uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight, where she talks about having the stroke in the left hemisphere of the brain. And so all of that talk about the right brain in her book made me notice your book, Mm. which was, you know, already on the bestsellers list, Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. And I read this book and I was so excited for myself (laughs) because I thought this is my time because I am what I need to be is more left brain. Mm. But I I live in the right brain. Mm -hmm. I live in that hemisphere. Well, that's how a lot of people have responded. The world is coming around to them. And a lot of times, especially in this country, these right brain abilities, uh, we haven't taken seriously enough. They said the people who are smart are the people who have these logical linear abilities. That's right. And these other people, they're flighty, they're spacey, they're artsy-fartsy, woo-woo, not serious. And actually the world, in a very hard-headed way, I mean, I came to this conclusion with the left side of my brain by just looking at the facts and looking at the evidence. Yeah, so these are not woo-woo conclusions. Not at all. I'm not a, I'm not that much of a woo-woo guy. I mean, I'm yeah. trying to sort of get more woo-woo, I guess, <laughs> in order to in order to navigate this world. But I think if you look at the facts, it's it's very clear that the scales are tilting. Parents of, of people in my generation said, you know, learn how to become an accountant, learn how to become a lawyer. Those are the abilities that will give you a very solid foothold in the middle class. Those kinds of abilities now still matter. But they're the kinds of abilities you can send overseas. They're the kinds of abilities you can reduce to lines of code in a computer program or website. Uh, And they're the kinds of things in this world where we have so much stuff, just so much material abundance, um, that what you really need is the ability to iterate something new, to come up with something the world didn't know it was missing. And those end up being very right-brain abilities. Okay. Would you say that you've become more woo-woo based or right-brain based on what you've learned writing this book? In some ways, in some ways, if you look, I mean, you know, in the book, as you know, we talk about six particular abilities. Yes. Um, and some of them I'm pretty good at. Some of them I need some work on. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the abilities is is symphony, which is big picture thinking. I'm reasonably good at that. Yeah. Meaning is another one. I'm reasonably good at that. Yeah. Um, the other ones, empathy, design, those kinds of things, I actually am trying to work those muscles back into shape. Yeah. I'm really good at empathy and meaning story. Story, of course. Really good at right? that. Not really good at play. I got to uh, get better at play. Uh-huh. Yeah, got to get too. better at play. So you, in the beginning of the book, talk about how we've come through all the various ages, mm. and now we're in the conceptual age. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we came through the agricultural age, right. the industrial age, the technological age, and I would think that most people would think that with the advancements, the rapid, you know, exponentially advancing um, technology that we're still in the technological age. But you say we're in a different age. The conceptual age. Right. How did you conclude that? Well, I mean, if you think about what makes the economies go round and Mm -hmm. who makes the economies go round, we had a world of agriculture where most people in this country were growing food. Right. Well, then what happened? We got better at growing food. We Technology improved. We could import food from other places. As people got wealthier, they needed new things. Right. 
boom, we boom. start doing something else. We start becoming an industrial, industrial economy. Age where you have the factory worker at the center of it. Right. Then what happens? Technology improves. We import manufactured goods elsewhere. We get richer. Boom. Boom. Pushes us to the information age. It's the same thing happening over and over again. It's the same thing happening one more time. What we now have is that the knowledge worker, the sort of the SAT worker, the spreadsheet person, um, is seeing his, and her, his or her abilities be able to get done cheaper overseas. Yeah faster by a computer and also be somewhat inadequate when you have there's just such a level of material well-being in this country. I mean you have you know 98% of homes have a color TV. You know 88% of homes have mobile phones. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to page 28 where you talk about abundance. Yeah. Let's talk about abundance and how that has affected us in the conceptual age. Well, abundance is is actually I think one of the most significant things going on in this country and it often gets the least amount of, of attention. Because what gets our attention is bad news that happens fast. We got more automobiles than we have licensed drivers. My grandparents, middle class people, didn't have a car. My two grandmothers, middle class women, never learned how to drive. Wow. Now, think about a middle class woman today not learning how to drive. Yeah. Because a car was a luxury. Uh I mean, my kids find this surprising. And so one of the things that struck me, because I hadn't even thought about this, you know, amazing abundance that we all have, no matter who you are, whatever your income level is, just like you were saying, everybody has a color television set. Mm -hmm. All right. And how the effect of that abundance uh, impacts the way we see our things so that you no longer just want to have things, you want to have cool things. You want to have well-designed things. You want to have interesting things. You want, you want to have things with meaning. You want to have things, yeah. It, a- absolutely. And think about it from the perspective of the, the people becomes who, who, who are creating. Yes. Well, I mean, the, 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 if, you're, if you're in business, yes. all right, your job in a world of abundance is to give people something they didn't know they were missing. But that's a very creative, it's an artistic ability. What do artists do? Artists give people something they didn't know they were missing. A dance, a piece of music, a painting, a piece of sculpture. It's all not all right brain. That is the best business strategy. You can appealing also, to all the six senses that you were talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. The scariest word in the economy right now is the word routine. Anything that is routine is disappearing from this country. And routine is work you can reduce to a spec sheet, to a script, to a formula, to a series of steps that has a right answer. If you can write down the steps and it has a right answer, you can someone can take that work, send the script or the spec sheet overseas and have someone overseas give you the right answer for a lot less. The thing is, certain kinds of work that middle-class moms and dads in this country told their kids to do is routine. Like? Certain kinds of accounting is routine. Absolutely. Certain kinds of, I mean, I went to law school for God's sake. Certain kinds of law is routine. Certain kinds of financial analysis is routine. So in order to make it today, you have to do work that's hard to outsource, hard to automate, and that delivers on these new imperatives of this very abundant age. But... When you talk to colleges or speak to kids who are looking for what to do with their lives now, what's your what's your best advice? Well, my advice at one level is just to it's very hard to predict exactly what I would never say to someone who's 22 years old, go, you know, plastics or you know, go into yes. some kind of field because who knows right. what, what's going to happen. That's I say follow of, your passion. But anyway. well, I, I agree with that. I say I say do something that's hard to outsource and hard to automate. Um but then ultimately, it's really about following your in- intrinsic motivation, doing mm-hmm. it is sort of figuring out your purpose. What, what are you here to do? What are you uniquely good at? And then I would actually add to that the importance of doing it persistently, uh, being dogged. I think that there are massive returns to, to doggedness. 
Do you believe that paradox of prosperity is the reason why we're now seemingly seeking meaning more than ever? I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you have is you have us, all this abundance has liberated us, but not fulfilled us. And so you have people liberated by prosperity, but not fulfilled by it. So they're using their extra time and energy and treasure to lift that level of satisfaction. And so the prosperity has, in some ways, liberated this thing that's, I think, fundamental about being a human being, which is figuring out, what am I I here here? for? What's it all about? How am I connected to everything else? Okay. So do you personally believe in divinity? Depends on what you mean by divinity. I believe that life has a purpose. Mm -hmm. I believe that we're here for a purpose. Of the six abilities, I'm pretty good at meaning. I mean, I think that what gives people satisfaction is doing something that's about a cause larger than themselves, themselves yes. about doing something that leaves some kind of an imprint. And to, to some extent in the books that I write, that's what I'm trying to do in a modest way. Now, I know that it works. And some of those Stanford students have read the book because I've gotten emails from them. Oh, have you? Yeah. And so and so that's, you know, oh, what do they say? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Uh, you know, where can I sell this on eBay? No. Uh, they, they, <laughs> no, they, 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 you know, they said, this is a great book. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't heard of it. And, you know, I have some time and I started reading it. And this really made me think about what I'm here for. Now, what's interesting is that this, from the students, both at Stanford and elsewhere, a lot of them say, I'm going to give this book to my parents because they're good at, say, I'm an art history major and art history is my passion. Yes. But my mom thinks I should go get an MBA and become an accountant. I'm going to give this book to her. That's the re- I've gotten that from some Stanford grads, and I've gotten that from a lot of other young people. Well, one of the things you say, that the MFA is the mm. new MBA. Right. Tell us what you mean. Well, an MFA is Master of Fine Art, and yeah. the MBA is you know business degree. Um, certain kinds of business things, abilities, you can send overseas, and you can reduce to software. And so you have investment banks and whatnot sending their back office jobs overseas. Now they're sending their middle office jobs overseas. Whereas what do fine artists do? They iterate something new, unexpected, delightful, that changes the world. And so um, those MFA abilities are actually harder to outsource and harder to automate and more important in an abundant world. So, you know, I've said that the MFA is a new MBA, which has ensured that I never get invited to a business school. (laughs) (laughs) Do you um, believe that we all have souls? Sure. I think, and I, does the soul live in the right brain? Well, actually, I think you can make a. I, I can answer with my left brain. Okay. I mean, I think that there's scientific evidence that shows that. I think that that is part of what it is to be human. Um, it's just now. I think what's interesting is that instead of it being seen as woo-woo, as we were talking about before, it's taken seriously because there's scientific evidence. So the left brainers have to respect that. Yeah. And it also ends up being valuable. In business, you have all these young people out there today, these Stanford graduates, uh-huh. saying, I want a job with meaning. I want a job that's about something larger than myself. I want a job that allows me to do something that, that matters. So does that mean if you, you know, really are just sort of formulaic, uh, left brain centered, that you are less spiritual? Not necessarily. I mean, again, all of these things are... I think all these things are fundamentally human abilities. These right brain abilities are fundamentally human abilities. Some of us have exercised these muscles repeatedly over our lives, mm-hmm. often to the derision of others. Mm-hmm. Others of us have kept them quieter, muscles that we haven't used, but they're all things that, that, that matter to people. I think that this idea of spirituality, of the divine, of wondering what it's all about is encoded into our DNA. It's, it's in our brains. It's part of what it is to be human. I mean, animals, I mean, other animals don't wonder about that. I don't think that a, a mouse is 
running around the, the, the hallway saying, what am I here for? What's my purpose? How do I live my best mouse life? Well, no, well, my best mouse <laughs> life, I like that. But I think what other, what, what, what we have talked about before in this whole series is that what, what the mouse and the dog and the elephant and the horse and all that, what they are is just in the moment. They are not worried about or thinking about whatever. They just, I'm, I'm a mouse and that's it. Well, that's an interesting point, too. It's a very interesting point because in some ways the left hemisphere, if you think about it, again, I, I don't want to geek out on you here, but okay. if you think about it in terms of like verb tenses, okay, okay, the left hemisphere is basically past and future and right hemisphere is present. Now. now. Uh -huh. And so that's what, I mean, so we... That's not geeking out on me. Right. That's just what we talk about here. All right. Come no, on. no, I was, I was thinking the whole thing about verb tenses. No, there, okay, you know? good. No, okay. No, that's not geeking out at all. Yeah. And so I think that the heartening thing for all of us is that it's being taken seriously. You can, you know, you, there are scientists out there who are, who are looking at this. You have the Dalai Lama doing joint projects with neuroscientists. You have the Jill Bolte Taylors of the world who have, you know, incredible street cred on neuroscience and neuroanatomy talking about her own experience and saying, this is what I, I learned from it. I think it's true in terms of how people navigate their lives. And I think we haven't in many ways seen anything yet on this kind of widespread search for meaning because of the baby boomers. And don't you think that learning to tap into those six senses would be more helpful to all of us in being more, you know, right brain centered? Absolutely. Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash giftfinder. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. In his book, A Whole New Mind, Daniel Pink details what he calls the six senses, the right brain functions that increasingly guide our lives and shape our world. Design, story, symphony, empathy, play, and meaning. How do we begin to create more design in our own lives? Well, there are all kinds of ways to do that. One of my favorite things to do, and something that I've, again, as someone who's not good at this topic, is um, to carry around a design notebook. You know, I have with me a little notebook right here. Carry around a notebook. And, I, and I, it's a good exercise for a week. So what you do is you take a notebook, a small notebook like the one that I'm holding here. Yeah. And you say, once a day, I'm going to find, write down an instance of good design and an instance of bad design that I see in my midst. And you do that just to begin to train yourself to think about it differently, right? Precisely. Precisely. And what you do is you realize everything is a product of a design decision. If you bought a cup of coffee this morning, that interaction, there's a design decision. The mug that's right here before yeah. me. I love a, a big mug. There's a design decision there. Yes. The shoes that you're wearing is a design decision. Everything yeah. in our lives has a design decision at the heart of it. Now, what's interesting is 
before reading a whole new mind, I always thought of design in terms of obviously fashion, you know, shoes and things. But you're right, every single thing. And then I started noticing the plates that I chose for my house, the kind of kitchen counters I chose for my the, the knobs, the cabinets themselves, all about That's design. That's part of it. But also, there's a design decision when someone goes into an emergency room. What the configuration of that room is. There's a design decision when you go and you check in at a at a hotel. All these things have a design decision. Some of them are good and some of them aren't. And 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 with design, it really is a. We're not trying to turn everyone into some like star designer to go on, you know, right. be a judge on Project Runway or something like that. What we're doing is we're trying to make people literate. And this is a great way, just a little notebook is a great way, inexpensive way to make people, help people become much more literate about design. Okay. And start paying attention. All right. Uh, story, which we talked a little bit about last right. week. Well, that's, it's how we see the world. It's how our brains yeah. work. I mean, you know, with, with, uh, when, when I come home or when, when, when people come home from a hard day at work and their spouse asks, you know, how was your day? They don't, you know, whip out a PowerPoint presentation with a pie chart. I mean, I do, but they don't whip out a pie chart. <laughs> yeah, you, you left brainer. Uh, you know, they say, oh, you're not going to believe it. First this happened, then that happened, then that happened. They narrate. And somehow in our kind of serious society, narration and storytelling has been banished as soft, as fake, as not serious. When in fact, it's fundamental to how human beings process the world. And you see it migrating to all kinds of, of businesses. Companies are using the backstory of a product or service as a way to differentiate it in the marketplace. Well, listen, you don't just watch the, the, the Olympians perform, but it's the backstory that gets your interest and gets you to care about how they do perform. I mean, and that only happened, you know, in recent years. That's the development of the story behind it. Well, obviously, I have a great uh, affection for story because I make my living telling other people's stories. Right. And understand that it is only through story that you build connection. You have to tell the story so that people feel something. They only want to do something after they feel something. Amen. I mean, that's how it, that's how it works. Now, the thing is that business is growing ever so slowly to recognize that. So business leadership is in some ways about storytelling. Yes. So you have now business schools ever so slowly saying, ooh, we need to bring in some narrative, we need to bring in some storytelling because if you want to lead a business or lead an organization, you have to be effective in charting out a vi- you know, setting out a vision and having a beginning, middle, and an end. And people want to know uh, where, pr- increasingly now, want to know where products and services came from. Mm-hmm. So you can buy a Dole banana, Dole organic banana that has a little sticker on it. The sticker has a number. You go to that number, go on the website, plug in that number, you can see where the bananas were grown, the kind of farm that it was on, the farmers who grew it. Because people want to know the story of how that product got from the ground to their their store. Absolutely. Symphony. Symphony is the ability to see the big picture, connect the dots, combine disparate things into something new. It is, in in many ways, kind of the signature ability. Uh, It's the best predictor of star performance in the workplace. Uh, It is, to my mind, a fundamentally artistic uh, ability. That, that is, I mean, visual artists in particular are very good at seeing how the pieces come together. And I experienced this myself by trying to learn how to draw, having taken no fine arts classes in high school, no fine arts classes in college, no fine arts classes as an adult, being the well-rounded guy that I am. Um, and I took a five-day drawing course in New York City that allowed me to learn how to see and how to see things symphonically and how to see the big picture. I know. We see the drawing that you do before the class where you were drawing like I do. I mean, it, it would be embarrassing. I think if I were like had to do some test as an adult and have to draw myself, I, I could, I'm still drawing the same picture of myself that I did in third grade. 
Very much like yours was in the beginning. Actually, yours was better than mine. I'm worse than that. I, ha I have no yeah. sense of it. So well, I should do. You're drawing out of the. See, what happens is people have told you, you can't draw a straight line. You're no good right. at drawing. Yeah. Which is not right. Uh, which, what's happening is that people draw out of the left side of the brain. There's a famous book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain that, is, that charted this out, and that's part of the course that I took. Um, we draw the left side of our brain. We draw symbols. We do that of, little curved line. Yes. It's a symbol. It's, it's a like symbol. an icon. It might as well be a computer icon. That's right. And um, and so in this course, I said, the, the teacher said, you need to think symphonically. You need to see symphonically um, proportions, relationships, light and shadow, negative space, which is the space between space. I didn't even know there was space right, between right, space. Right, right, right. And literally i mean that's talk about a transformative experience it literally changed the way i see when i walk into a room now i see it fundamentally differently i see it in a much more holistic symphonic way i know so it's 5 days you need 5 days they actually have i think i have a one day class too wow how was it that you were able to come to this if you are how do you how is it that you know right brainers are going to rule the future if you're not one because it's actually the advantage is that I'm a left-brainer. So I look at the facts, at the evidence, and it's clear. Oh, that's right. If you're a right-brainer, you wouldn't have even come up with this. You would have been lollygagging around <laughs> saying, oh, what a pretty picture. And, you know, and, and here I am. I would have been out in woo-woo land. Right. Yeah. I mean, here I am looking at the facts and saying, wow, there sure are a lot of people in India. Wow. Look, at, look there are 21 million people who are doing their income taxes on TurboTax each year. That's a lot of people. What's going to happen to the accountants who do that? And you look at the facts and the evidence. And I don't think it's even close that the scales that the scales are tilting. You said something in the book, and you know I'm obviously of a different generation even than you. And you quoted, I think, a guy from USC who says that games are the new literature for this generation. And you talked about if you were to ask um, mm. every college student in this country, what movies have you seen? Maybe, you know, 50% of them have seen Casablanca and, you know, a lot more have seen Jaws. But if you ask who's played a game, mm -hmm. you know, the Mario Brothers or whatever, 100% of them have play played a game. And right. that if for, for those people in my generation to not understand the power of games, then we're com completely out of it. You know, the video games, they're, they're good games and they're, and they're bad games, but the, the nature of gaming itself is quite interesting. I mean, people willingly... But there are degrees in games now. You sure. can go to school and get degrees in games. Well, there are degrees in, in creating video games is in many ways of uh, this classic kind of whole-minded experience. But again, I don't want my kids playing only games. Okay? I, don't, I don't say, you must have a 100% diet of games. Yes. I, I wouldn't want my kids doing 100% of any. I wouldn't want my kids spending all their time reading 19th century novels. Absolutely. I don't think that's healthy either. Absolutely. I think a mixed diet of these things. And I think that, especially for adults, a lot of uh, learning uh, is taking place in the form of a game, basically uh -huh. a simulation. You know, how do you learn how to fly a plane? Do you sit in a class and take notes, or do you get into a flight simulator? Absolutely. I want my pilot having taken the flight simulator. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's a way that people, it's a way that people learn. Yes. Well, empathy is uh, another part of what you say we need in order to move into the conceptual right brain age. And I think I kind of got that down. I think but tell so me too. what you mean. Uh, standing in someone's shoes, feeling with their heart, seeing with their eyes. Uh, it's a fundamental human ability. Mm -hmm. It makes the world a better place. It's hard to outsource and hard to automate. Yes, and it, but if you don't have it, aren't you born with that naturally? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and no. It's it's a. Um, you can teach empathy to your kids. Can you not? I think so. It's a spectrum. Okay, and so you can get to the higher end of your spectrum 
through practice and mm -hmm. environment and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And uh, so someone who has, you know, a band of empathy that isn't very high is never going to become Mother Teresa. But all of us can move to the upper end through a whole array of, of things. I think starting early, as you suggest, is really important, too. Yeah, getting your kids to step out of themselves, think of other kids, you know, during the holidays, offering not just gifts to them, but teaching them how to give gifts back, even if it's small, small things. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then there is meaning. Oh, yeah. That's the big one that everybody's seeking. Meaning. Isn't that what everybody wants? I mean, one of the things that I think I've learned is a, is a common denominator in all of my experiences and in interviews, that everybody wants to be validated. No matter who you are, even you at the end of this session will, will assess for yourself, you know, did I do okay? Sure. Was okay? Sure. Did, did what I say matter? Did right. you hear me? And, and I think that's what everybody is looking for every aspect of their life, to have some meaning, to know that what I said meant something to you, that you, first of all, you heard me and that what I said mattered. Yes. I mean, I think ultimately that's what it is to be human at some yes, level. Yes, now, again, we didn't, all, we didn't always have the ability necessarily, the luxury of being able to talk about that, being able to integrate that fully in our lives. When right. you're scraping you know, for survival, that's right. it's harder to think of. It's not impossible, but it's harder to think about that. But now we can, be much, we can have conversations like this. People can have conversations around their dining room tables, kitchen tables about all these things. And the collective force of that is actually pretty amazing. Okay, the keys to the kingdom are changing. Isn't the actual kingdom changing? Who actually has the keys changes the, changes the kingdom. I think that the context and the rules that are in place inevitably change when certain new people are essentially in charge or new kinds of people are in charge or when the people who are in charge begin to develop some of these new abilities. And what you're saying is that right-brainers and the people who have those, the greatest sense of the six senses, design and story and empathy and meaning and play uh, are going to be the ones who rule the future. Yeah, they're the ones who have the abilities that we need in the economy. Those are to be the ones who are going to be flourishing. That doesn't mean that computer programmers are going to be scrubbing counters, but, yeah. it, but it does mean that those computer programmers, <laughs> um, and if you talk to computer programmers, you realize this, they have to be able to do uh, empathic work, understand the customers better, be able to move across disciplines in a symphonic way, have a design sensibility, be able to talk in narrative terms about what they're about what they're doing. How does the integration of meaning help us rule? Well, I mean, if you have all these pe all people out there yearning to figure out what it's all about, then those who are I don't know what to say answering the question, but those who are convening the conversation mm -hmm. are the ones who are actually shaping people's experiences. Absolutely. And so um, so I, I, think it's, I think it's ultimately a glorious thing. And there are ways, you know, and for some people it's not that comfortable of a conversation. There are things that people can do that I've encouraged them to do in, in, in the book. Because what I tried to do in the book is not only lay out this grand theory and then say, oh, later, you're on your own, but to try to give people a whole array of tools and tips and exercises and things. That's what's to get, so great. At the end of every chapter, there's something to do to improve yourself. And one of my favorite exercises. I mean, there are all kinds of great exercises in, in, in meaning, all kinds of incredible things. Like, for instance, on gratitude, um, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania came up with what he calls the gratitude visit, where you think of somebody in your life whom, who is important to you, but whom you haven't properly thanked. You write that person a letter expressing your thanks, and then you go there and deliver it to them in person. And people have, again, 
you know, I've gotten emails from readers saying, you know what, I read this and I decided to do it. And of course, the person who is the recipient of the gratitude, you know, finds it this incredibly moving experience. And then they are triggered to think who That's they right. haven't. And so you have this kind of daisy chain of, of, of goodness. There are other things where you, um, one of my exercises that I like is to picture yourself at 90. Picture yourself, putting your, yourself in the head of 90-year-old you, looking back on your life. What are your regrets? What did you do right? What did you do wrong? Although I got a funny email from one reader saying, Dear Mr. Pink, you know, I, I enjoyed your book, um, but I just have to take issue with your picture yourself at 90 exercise. You see, I'm 91. <laughs> <laughs> Best-selling author Daniel Pink's book, Drive, is all about motivation. Daniel says... The key no longer lies only with the promise of rewards. Instead, it's intrinsic motivation that drives us, what he describes as our innate need to direct our own lives, to learn and create new things, and to do better by ourselves and our world. Some people are more in touch with their intrinsic drive or intrinsic desire than others. Why is that? Well, it's, I think it's a combination of things. Number one is, is that it depends on the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the environment that we're in shapes how we behave hugely. Uh, we sometimes overplay the importance of innate qualities when we explain behavior mm-hmm. and underplay the importance of context. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. The other thing is that we're an accumulation of experiences. So if you have the chance to be autonomous and self-directed early on, then you're more likely to continue it. So if you go to, I mean, a lot of our schools are pretty controlling and carrot and stick right, oriented. Right, 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 right. And so if you sort of go through that regime and then you go into a company organization that's very carrot and stick oriented, eventually you begin to say, okay, I guess this is how the world works. But if we start with a different notion of human nature, that we're active and engaged and curious, then that leads you in very different that leads you in very different directions. Basically, what it means is that you don't need the carrot and the stick. You've got to give people a lot of freedom. You've got to help them move to get better at stuff because that's one of the most satisfying things in life. And also connect them to a purpose larger than themselves. Well, if you were to look at a tabloid or any, you know, almost any magazine right now, uh, it appears that external motivators, you know, fame and money and power are as strong as they ever were. In Drive, are you, are you suggesting that this is not the case? I'm suggesting, well, I think it is still the case. I'm suggesting that I mean, we might need to re-examine this. Because, Daniel, really, if you just, just pause a minute, mm-hmm. I just think it's gotten crazy. I think the celebrity, you know, wannabe reality TV yeah. culture has lost its mind. And I think there's a sense that our culture more broadly has lost its mind. And so you have that going on. At the same time, you have people looking at the, what's going on and saying, What's, what's happening here? Isn't there a better way to, to, to lead our lives? And I think that that idea, that idea that there's got to be a better way, I think that idea is palpable out there right now. It's not on the front page of the tabloid magazines, yeah. but it's out there around kitchen tables where people are having these conversations. And it's, I think it's pushed a big part by the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. I think the baby boomers are about to unleash a tsunami of a purpose as more and more of them hit age 60. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I found when baby boomers hit 60, they have a very predictable response. Tell me. First, it's sort of three stages. First stage is they say, how the heck did I get to be 60? And then they say, 60's not so old. You got it. You got the second <laughs> stage, right. So they're like, oh, my gosh. They have that alarm, and then they mm-hmm. say, 60's, 60's not old. Um, and it's not. I mean, God mm-hmm. willing, you know, Knockwood, you, you could be around for a while. And so they say, oh, well, maybe you have 25 good years left. And they breathe a sigh of relief. And then they go to stage three when they look back 25 years to when yeah. they're 35. Uh-huh. And they say, holy smokes. 
that you can tell I'm from Ohio, but using mm. a phrase like that, holy, <laughs> holy, <laughs> holy smokes, holy smokes, that sure happened fast. Are the next 25 years going to happen as fast? And if they are, what is my legacy going to be? Mm-hmm. What am I going to contribute? To use your phrase, when am I going to live my best life? Yes. And I think that now that that seems a little on the touchy feely side, but if you look at the numbers, like I'm a numbers guy, if you look at the yeah. numbers, this is going on at a scale. Right brain is all touchy feely. That's what we are. I'm with you. Here's the thing: I'm a left brain, non touchy feely guy saying you're going to rule the world. Just help me, help me make it. Um, the um, um, if you look at the numbers, it's astonishing. This is unprecedented in human civilization. You have 78 million baby boomers. And if you, if you 78 million? 78 million. But here, here's my startling factoid. The, you have in this country 100 baby boomers turning 60 every 13 minutes in this country. Oh my God. 100 boomers having those kinds of conversations. Oh my gosh, I'm 60. What am I going to do for the final chapter of my life? When am I going to step up and do something that matters? What is my legacy going to be? How, when am I going to live my best life? This is going on at a scale that yes. we haven't seen before. 78 million. 78 million. So, you know, in the course in the course 60 in the course of, minutes. you know, in the course of this conversation, we'll have another another 100 plus boomers will turn, turn 60, 60 and have these con- kinds of conversations. I think that the accumulation of that is is an unstoppable force. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. Okay, so does it mean you have to turn 60 in order to think this way? No, it means that you're, you have many people who lead, who are very purpose-oriented mm-hmm. from, from the inception, thanks to their environment, thanks to the way that they were raised, etc. But I think there's something, I think the alarm really goes off at 60. I don't think you have to be 60, but right. I think when you, when you start reckoning with your own mortality, that is a moment when I think people really begin saying, okay... What's it all about? Yeah, yeah, that to seek purpose is elemental to our human drive. Yeah. Um, when you see that, when you read that, and you say, "Okay, there's proof of that," and yet I look around the world, and I'm like, I, 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 "The world looks like it's getting worse." You know, when we look at the present, our imagination is sometimes impoverished. We never, we we often understate. Okay, let me think. Of, look at the present. Yeah, our imagination is impoverished. Yeah, I don't mean to be too woo woo on you here, but okay. I think that that's. I think that's, oh, you can woo-woo me all yeah, day long. But, I, but, but, but here's, the, here's the thing. I actually went back, and I'll, I'll tell you something fairly interesting. You'll, you'll decide whether it's interesting. <laughs> okay, good. So, so it's 1999, and I decided to do some, some research about, about futurists and what mm-hmm. do futurists who are looking at 2000 project. Okay. Kind of interesting. Okay, okay. so I look back, and I— This really, is 1999. It's 1999. Okay. So I look back, and I say, okay, so you got some people who are these crazy, wild utopians. Yes. We're going to have jetpacks, uh, you know— Capsules of, of food that will do that will nourish everybody. It's okay. kind of Jetsons, this great right. wonderful world. They're wrong. Then you have these wild dystopians, this scarred landscape of nuclear annihilation yes, and yes, yes. you know Blade Runner. Okay, which looks like the road or the yeah know, yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly. Harmon McCarthy's road. All right, then so that's like fifty percent were that way, forty percent were these crazy wild. Then like ten percent of people who say, I think things will be a little bit better. 
And they're the ones who ended up being right. Because I think that that's the, the, the arrow of history points in that direction. That things, that things get, get a little bit better. I think things are a little bit better. I think we have this kind of false nostalgia for the past. But I think that we move toward greater autonomy and self-direction. We make things a little bit better. That's our, that's our story. I think that's also, I mean, it, with the risk of being chauvinistic, I think that's also the American story. You're absolutely right. It's, uh, it is it's our story. Imperfect. Yeah. But a little bit better. You talk about ty- type X's yeah. and type um, I. I. Talk a little bit about that. Type I is intrinsic. I for intrinsic. They're, That's in, right. they're more inter- they're right. driven by more internal forces than external forces. Right. Okay. Type X is the opposite. Um, type I's are happier and healthier. Yes. That's number well, one. Type I's also like mastery. They love mastery. Yes. They like to get better at stuff. Yes, because yes. we're human beings. We like to get better at stuff. Yes. That's how I recognize myself in the type I. Interesting. You always want, I just always want to get better. And that question that we ask, I ask myself, am I better today than I was yesterday? It's, it's a profoundly important am question. Am I better today the, than I was the, this yesterday? Is, this, I mean, I think it's a great question. I mean, in this, we have an exercise in this book where yes. we, we have these two parts. One is you ask yourself, what's your sentence? Yes. This comes from a famous story about Claire Booth Luce, who asked President Kennedy, said, hey, a great man is a sentence. You don't have a sentence. You've got a paragraph. And that doesn't work. (laughs) And Lincoln, if you really want to be great, Lincoln had a sentence. He preserved the union and freed the slaves. Wow. Good, Good sentence. FDR had a sentence. He lifted us out of a Great Depression and helped us win a world war. Awesome sentence. And she she went into Kennedy and said, listen, a great man is a sentence. A great person is a sentence. And, um, and I find that really useful in sort of orienting our lives toward purpose. And ask, you know, we ask, our, ask ourselves, what's your sentence? Yeah. What, and I think that's really clarifying for people. Yeah. But Okay, okay. I, yeah. You know what mine is? What's your sentence? Mine was, as I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking, well, what I want it to be is that I teach people to lead their best lives by leading my own. Whoa. That's a good sentence. That's a good sentence. Yeah, I like that. that. Okay. That's a keeper. That's a keeper. And what's your <laughs> sentence? Man, I don't, I don't want to follow that one. Um, <laughs> no, my sentence, as I thought about this, was uh, uh, he wrote books that, that help people understand the world a little more clearly and live their lives a little more fully. Well, that's good. It's all right. A lot of adverbs in that was, one. Was, but you had a comma in there. He, 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 he helped people, uh, you know, because it's past tense, because I'm gone now. Okay, go um, it, it's, uh, He helped people, uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote books that help people uh, understand their world a little bit better and okay. live their lives a little more fully. Okay, that is a good sentence. It's not preserving the union, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, but then the, your other question is really important because that's kind of a lofty thing, but that doesn't help us get better and move toward mastery day to day. And so the second question is, and I, I find this really useful for myself, is ask yourself at the end of the day, was I better today than yesterday? Because that's really all we can ask for. And what I have found in my own – this has been really helpful to me, this one um, – what I have found when I ask myself at the end of the day, was I better today than yesterday, is that many times the answer is no. But what I find, is, which is interesting, and I'm curious to see other people's reaction to this, is that I find that the answer is rarely no two days in a row. That if the answer, is, if the answer is no when I go to sleep, I'm just a little ticked off. And you wake up the next morning with a little bit more resolve. To make it better. Yeah, because you're not here forever. It's like, oh, great, I wasn't better today than yesterday. That was a waste. Let's not do that again. Absolutely. And, um, and that's how we make progress. We do it slowly, step by step by step. Um, that's the only way we do any kind of personal change, any kind of organizational change. And, right. and I think about, okay, what's a good way to, for people to find that North Star? Well, I've done a lot of you know, spiritual practices over the years. My, one of my favorite uh, is to keep a gratitude journal where you literally, at the end of every day, write down at least five things that you were grateful for in that day. And what I found 
is that when you um, have a list to make at the end of the day, you move through the day looking for what you can be grateful for. That's an interesting point, yeah. Just like you were saying that you never, two days in a row, can't say that I got better because then, well, if I didn't get better, then tomorrow I'm going to work on getting better. But this now, I think, adds to that practice of, okay, I'm going to be grateful for these things and was today better than... And, you know, there have been some days when I'm sitting there with a list and really, and I have to go to my breath while I'm breathing, so I'm grateful <laughs> for that. You know, th- hey, those that's are the, good. Those better, are the bad days. But, but that's better than the alternative. That's better right? than the alternative. But I think that's such a, that is such a profound yeah. spiritual practice. I think that it is. And, it's, and the thing is... To we, say, am I better today than I was yesterday? And that is your goal, is to always be better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and recognize the reality is that it's not always, you're always not good. You're not always going to be better. So that is really in pursuit of the mastery of your own life. Yeah, I think that that's how we are. We want to move toward mastery. We want to do something that, that matters and, and, that, and that endures. And again, this is not, what's interesting, I think, in a, to me, is that, is that a lot of these spiritual practices, um, which have endured for a long time, there's actually a lot of scientific support that this is actually how humans perform at a higher level. Uh-huh. And I think that that's really interesting. The, the world of, of our kind of a gut instincts, the world of spiritual practices, and the world of science are kind of coming together to say, okay, maybe we can lead our lives in a different way this time. Do you define gut instincts and soul as the same thing? Are they Not the necessarily. Same? Okay. Not necessarily. Um, how do you define soul? Um, I just, soul is, I think, our, our capacity to see that our lives are about something more than simply the day-to-day. And that our lives, that we're here for a purpose, that it, it could be connected to religion or not, uh-huh. but that there is a purpose of your being here. Right. That's, right. that's really how I look at it. And you can do that either believing in an organized religion uh, or not. Or not. Right. But interesting how it all is connected to the same thing. So your soul is believing in something bigger than yourself or that there's a greater purpose. Your desire for autonomy and your desire for meaning in your in your, in your work is all about the same thing, and that is what gives you drive, and that is what makes your day better today than it was yesterday. Right, it's all connected. Right, it's the circle of life, my son. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll I'll see your Lion King and raise you a horse. I mean, the, it's it's what makes you, horses don't have those kinds of thoughts. Yeah, horses don't say. What's my sentence? Yes. Was I better today than yesterday? Okay, yeah. and yet too often we think that human beings are simply slower, smaller, better smelling horses, and that the only way we'll do anything is if you toss us a carrot or threaten us with a stick. And that's just wrong. We can argue whether it's wrong morally. The science says that it's the wrong pathway to, to achievement and performance. I love that. Well, I hope this motivates all of you to buy the book. <laughs> I can imagine that there or are... Or just read the book. You or... don't even have to buy it. Go to the library. <laughs> yeah, you can. Go I don't to want to make this a contingent incentive here. Yeah, not a, okay. Okay. However, you can get the book. You should. It's called Drive: The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, and I hope this motivates you to buy the book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Always, always. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.